chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In our last study, The congregation of Jesus Christ expanded beyond the borders of Judea into Samaria, beyond the culture of the Jews into the culture of the Samaritans, and then, in a remarkable incident directed by the providence of God, a representative of the uttermost parts of the earth was brought into the kingdom of heaven and sent on his way as a prophetic promise that the kingdom of heaven in all its fullness would continually spread until it met him again in his homeland. In his conversion, a flag was planted for Jesus Christ at the margin of the world. And as we resume the narrative to which Acts 8 was essentially an interlude, we will find one of the most significant features of God's plan to overtake the world for Christ. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I call Acts chapter 8 an interlude, but of course it was an important one as it established the continual progress of the kingdom in the face of persecution and demonstrated clearly God's power to overcome all earthly opposition and to accomplish His will in the world. Yet I think it should be viewed as a parenthesis or an interlude of sorts because in Acts 9 we begin with the words, Then Saul still. So we are returning here to the story that began at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, when a young man named Saul began a rampage against the Hellenistic Christians in the church at Jerusalem. Remember that calling Saul a young man does not mean that he was a teenager or even what we would consider university age. He was probably a little younger than Jesus so he would be in his late 30s at this point. Luke describes him in a position of power and influence at the martyrdom of Stephen, and even more so in the subsequent narrative. His hearty agreement to Stephen's death boils over into him leading an onslaught that made havoc of the church in Jerusalem. At this point, we need to say a little bit about the man Saul himself. Now, Luke does not indulge us with many biographical details when he introduces Saul. In fact, most of what we learn about Saul in the book of Acts on the whole is incidental, as Saul describes himself in certain of his speeches. But it's not inappropriate for us to draw what we can from other sources and to build a short biography at this stage, because by the time the book of Acts was written— and published among the Christians throughout the world, Saul was one of the most famous and well-known personalities in that community, so the background information was certainly already present in the minds of Luke's first readers. Saul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, in modern Turkey, 
according to Acts 22 and verse 3. He was raised in a devout and strict Jewish household. He was, I think, what the German Bible scholar Theodor Zahn called a Hebrew Jew, using the terminology of Luke in Acts 6 and verse 1, or a Hebrew of Hebrews using his own terminology in Philippians 3.5. That is, he was a Jew who, though raised outside of Palestine in the diaspora, was brought up to retain Palestinian culture. Thus, Saul uniquely sympathized and found sympathy with both the Hebrews and the Hellenists in Jerusalem. He was a truly cosmopolitan character in a way that was virtually unparalleled by his contemporaries. His family identified with the Pharisees, according to Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, and religiously, he describes himself as blameless concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Now, if you're already familiar with his theology after he becomes a Christian, you'll find that a very strange statement, because the driving message of his life is that no one who was a sinner like him and every other person, is justified by the law, precisely because no one is blameless. So Paul is speaking here rhetorically. He is saying that according to the common views of Jewish theology at the time, he was judged a righteous man by his neighbors, and he was held in the highest esteem because of his intense legal scrupulosity in all the areas that mattered to the community of the Pharisees. He was perhaps most importantly a Roman citizen, which gave him tremendous legal and social advantages within the empire that were simply not available to most Jews, and we'll talk about that more in a future special study. He came to Jerusalem as a young man to study with the legendary Rabbi Gamaliel, where he was an exceptional student. In Galatians 1.14, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Of course, we met Gamaliel before in chapter 5. He appeared there as a cautious, almost moderate personality who thought he might protect himself by a political aloofness to Christianity. But his student is very different. Saul describes himself as concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Philippians 3.6. This zeal of which he speaks refers to the sense of divine obligation, a duty to God to oppress and oppose those whom he judged the enemies of God's covenant with Abraham, even to the point of violence and torture and murder. By his own testimony in Galatians 1.13, he sought to destroy the church. So Saul is a dreadfully dangerous combination, a powerful and influential, brilliant and talented, passionate and driven man with a position in life and the disposition of spirit to annihilate those he considers opposed to the will of God. And now he has come to view the Christians in just that light. So picking up in Acts 9 verse 1, Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Then Saul still. These words joltingly reel us around from the optimistic scenes of Philip's preaching circuit and the growth of the church to the ongoing and concurrent reality of persecution and opposition. Even as the gospel works and the kingdom expands, Saul still is doing the great evil he was doing when we last met him. Luke describes him very graphically as breathing threats and murder. Every intake of air energized his vehement hatred, and every expulsion of his lungs was another curse and violent plot against the disciples of the Lord. Saul evidently felt that he had accomplished something in Jerusalem. Remember that the apostles were still there, and it seems other Christians like James the Elder. So there was still a church in Jerusalem, but Saul feels compelled to move beyond the city. And this indicates to me that we were correct to identify the specific group within the church, the Hellenists, as the target of his attacks. Evidently, he had successfully put down the Hellenist Christian movement in Jerusalem by violence. Some had died, some had apostatized, and others had fled. Yet Saul really believed in the necessity of ending this movement altogether. So he turned his attention to those who were scattered and had gone everywhere preaching the word. Luke says he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. These letters would accredit him as a trustworthy representative of Orthodox Judaism and serve as a sort of arrest warrant for the Christians on the basis that their teachings were a threat to the peace of Israel, and they should be brought to a trial before the Sanhedrin. Damascus was a very ancient city, dating back to the time of Abraham. Located about 120 miles northeast of Jerusalem, it was the ancient capital of Syria, and one of the great tragedies of the modern era is the desolation the city has experienced during recent wars. In the days of Acts 9, the Jewish population of the city is estimated around 40,000, with between 30 to 40 synagogues. So it was a reasonable place for Christian refugees to flee. They might have relatives with whom to lodge, and these synagogues would give several opportunities for evangelism, which was their abiding passion, even in this difficult hour. In this passage, Luke describes the followers of Jesus as those who were of the way. It's very interesting that this expression is so uncommon in modern Christian jargon, because it was a favorite term for Luke, and one that he treats as quite familiar to his readers. He makes no effort to explain it, indicating that the ancient disciples knew it very well. Gareth Reese suggests the term may have originated with the words of Christ when he claimed to be the way to the Father, John 14, 6, or his words about the straight and narrow way that leads to life, Matthew 7 and verse 13. We might add to this an older prophetic context, such as the highway of holiness prophecy in Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. Or maybe all of these should be taken together as several examples of the same motif. It is true that some commentators have treated the term not as a name for the Christian movement, but merely a synonym for the word religion. That's, in fact, how it is translated by Bishop Newcomb 
and how McGarvey treats it, but the use of the term throughout Acts in 19 verses 9 and 23, 22 verse 4, 24 verses 14 and 22 besides this place, support the idea that this was a formal designation. If so, it was not exclusive, as there are large portions of the New Testament that use other names, such as Christians and saints and believers and disciples, the last of which is, of course, used in this very same passage. But it is an important part of the spiritual vocabulary given to the people of God to describe who they are and what Jesus Christ is doing in this world in a way that keeps the focus marvelously on Jesus himself. If we follow the way, it is not simply adherence to a plan, nor is it simply devotion to a man, but rather it is a full submission to the work and will of the man Christ Jesus, who alone, because of his august nature and identity, is able to make us just before God, and to bring us into the glory of God's eternal purpose. Once again, as before, in chapter 8 and verse 3, Luke mentions that Saul's aggression was against all of the disciples, whether men or women. The ancient attitude toward women was often dismissive. Their testimony was not admissible in court. They were not placed in positions of significant leadership in society, nor were they welcomed into religious discussion. So, for Saul to extend his aggression against the women of the movement highlighted his mercilessness, but it may also have had something to do with the significance that women played in the Christian community. While women are not permitted to teach in the assembly or hold offices of leadership in the church, women have always been the backbone of the followers of Jesus Christ from the days of his earthly ministry, even to the present time. So to take down one of the prominent women of the church could be very devastating to the strength of the believers in that area. Saul's purpose was that he might bring them, any Christians he was able to locate, bound to Jerusalem. And what awaited them in Jerusalem? In Acts 26 and verse 9, Saul reflected on his life to this point and said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary or literally hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In even grimmer terms, he looked at this season and lamented that he was then chief among sinners, confessing that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. 1 Timothy 1, 13-15 the expression an insolent man literally means that he was super aggressively violent in his attacks against the Christians. His ultimate goal was to try to compel them by torture and threats to blaspheme Jesus Christ and deny him, according to Acts 26 and verse 11. There's nothing more painful to a preacher of the gospel and to look back on earlier days when in foolishness and wickedness his life and words and works led souls to damnation instead of salvation. But Saul knew that there were some who had committed to follow Jesus 
who he drove away by his brutality. Those who he could not compel to apostatize were killed somehow or another. He clearly confesses that he persecuted the way unto death, Acts 22.4. It's unclear if he ever killed a Christian himself, but he used his influence to encourage and support their murders. Acts 26.11 says, he says that in these works he persecuted them even to foreign cities and this seems to indicate that Damascus was not the first place he pursued Christians outside of Jerusalem. We don't know where else he may have done his work. However, Damascus would be the last. Here stands Saul of Tarsus, dreadfully deceived and enslaved by Satan, duped into killing God's people and thinking he is serving God warring against the power of his creator and savior who wishes to save even him. But Jesus Christ is relentlessly seeking the lost, even those so lost that they hate him and deny him. And soon we will see Jesus take these despised feet swift in running to do evil, and transform them into beautiful feet that walk the world bearing the gospel of peace. He will take this warped and insolent mind, sickeningly skilled at crafting cruelty, and turn its brilliance to elucidating the mysteries of God. He will take this indefatigable bloodlust and turn it into an insatiable passion to save the souls of man in spite of the most overwhelming opposition. And these lips that were breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord will soon come to say, Only Christ and Him crucified with praise and glory. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory. Sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do his good will, while we do his good will, he abides with us still, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, stay, trust and obey. Trust and do best.